coming. So we speak every year about certain um, about a person whose our Dairozim that fell in our lifetime. We have a shaykhis too. We have some shaykhis. We've spoken till now about people who fell, who were involved in the Chur Meirup of Nazi Germany. I wanted to speak about another parish this year and maybe focus maybe two or three people because it's hard to focus one person on this. And there was another Churban that happened in, in Europe concurrent. It's not been spoken about enough, but in its viciousness and its al was in many ways much worse. Two Klal Yisrael has an Hashem and a Guf, and both of them are needed to give over the Dvar Hashem. The Tzor, the Nazi Tzor said, if we burn the ashes of Klal Yisrael, if we burn the Gufas of Klal Yisrael, then there'll be nothing left to be Mahal Hashem, and we've gotten rid of that. And Stalin communism He was just the, he was the Amolik Ben but all of it was Ra. They wanted to get rid of Akarish Baruchu, of the Neshama, of the world, and Klal Yisrael specifically. And therefore, they, when they had to kill the Guf to get rid of Neshama, they did it. But they were more than happy to leave the Guf and thoroughly get rid of Neshama. It was a terrible churban of Klai Yisrael. And Kemat Oikim Nasherish, millions, two and a half, three million people in Russia at the time of the revolution. And I'd like to speak about a little bit about the, the certain Arzel Levonin, and then maybe we'll focus on one or two specific. There's a lot to be spoken, maybe other years, different, there are quite a few people, not that many, but quite a few, but to go through, to live through a little bit what it meant and so on. In 1917, more or less, there was two and a half to three million Jews there. It's hard to tell the numbers, and depends on what's Russia, Soviet Union, but that's the number, it's in general. The Tsar was overthrown, and instead, there was a few months of a provisional government, and then the communists grabbed power. Half year later or so, in November, they grabbed power, and they became the Balabatim. There, there, there was uh, one of the core, one of the core beliefs or one of the core matars was to be oike, any semblance of religion, and be from the Yidin. One of the darkest chapters in Klausel's history is the Yevsekzia, Yevreiske Sekzia. It was the Jews who became they were diehard communists. 
And when they yerdim, yerdim lamata, they became the spearhead. They formed a division. The communist government had a division to deal with Jews, and the Efsexia was kilo a Jewish movement to deal with the Jews. And it was Mnaetzas, the Fletzas Mnaetzas, and its koyach was so much stronger. The guy has a pogrom, you know, perfunctory, takes a little money and he goes. They knew what Rabbi Tom's film is, what regular film is, who's the Rav, who's the Shamish, what the Sfarim are, everything. And they went after it with a vengeance. It was a horrible, horrible episode in Klaus's history. They were the ones, the government, you know, at a certain point, and that's that. The Lahashmi, the Laharag, was incredible. It lasted 10 years until they basically destroyed everything. Then Stalin destroyed them. They went. But 1917, 18, 19, some people tried to stay and persevere, seeing it as another Xera. The yeshivas, Chavetz Chaim writes letter that he saw, as soon as he saw them being Shabbos, he felt he could be no Tkuma, and he basically, everyone went. What happened was a big part of Russia, today it's, it's, it's Belarusia, that was Poland those days. Poland had taken over a big chunk of it. It's a saving grace. So all the literature yeshivas, so-called yeshivas are Poland, but it's Kletsk, Rad, and so on. And that became, um, so that they all went back there. They, they say, the quotes in Tuzza Musach of time in his later years had Harata. He said, we should have fought. We would have lost a lot of Kabbanis, but we would have beaten the Sitra Akhra. It doesn't bring a marker, but actually, that was that. Navardika tried to fight with a lot of tremendous nefesh. And in a short time, they realized it's not possible. And they had to, now they had to sneak out of Russia. There was no easy feat. People got caught, people got sentenced. But being it to be, at some point, they managed to get out. Chabad was left. And the Rebbe de Mariatz was very strong about staying there. And it's also to leave, especially Rabbonim, Klikoidish, and people who are Sheikhit, Moyal, etc. And he, he basically told the Chassidim to stay. They were by far the largest group. They were organized, and he was masterful at organizing. And in hundreds of shtetlach and cities, they had something doing. Somebody teaching kids, shaykhit, moyal, something. And he stayed, and he sort of tried to fear a tish. One by one by one by one, they were all exterminated. Almost every single one, but just a question when, they came and destroyed town by town. They had Moisrim, the type of people who turned against them, 
some people willingly, some people by fright, some people forced, but one by one by one was destroyed. 1927, the Reb himself was arrested, sentenced to death. There was a tremendous public uproar, and they mitigated the sentence to, to Golas, and then finally they got him out with his family. He was in Latvia, in Poland, and tried his best to do things um, for the people left. But basically, by 1930, there was nothing left. The people who had been Klikoidesh, um, who had done things, they all were sentenced, killed, in the 30s, then the 20s and 30s, Stalin took over, and there were Kufis that it was already terribly, and Kufis was stumbled. But mikveh by mikveh, shul by shul, everything was crushed. With excuses here, excuses there, and so on. This lasted, and during the war years, was a little bit of a let up. There were not, they were focused on the Nazis, but the warriors were terrible themselves. The conditions were horrible. The um, people were, um, they, they, those who were drafted, was unspeakable conditions. And then shortly after the war, 1948, he, he felt astounded that the Jews are too friendly with the um, Israeli ambassador. They, it, it aroused too much. He thought it was dead already. There was too much by sentiment. So he bore down and was ready for still more. And anyone, anything that showed any sign of Yiddishkeit was Achistos Lahamis. I want to go through a little bit and understand what it meant. What happened to you? I read a lot of it. There are a lot of accounts written, obviously, from those who survived. So you were in a town and you were running a little cheder. You had three, four kids. You lived there very clandestinely. Um, you had a mikveh somewhere hidden, and so on. And one night, at 2 o'clock, there'd be powerful knocks on the door. They would crash through the door if you didn't answer quickly enough. They would line everybody up against the wall, men, women, children. They would ransack the house from top to bottom, take all sperm, anything, pictures, things like that. And then they would tell you, come, you're under arrest. That was it. No, no one had any idea of how long, who, what, when, where. Hazal called the Esav Tahoim, Tahoim, as English cats. No rhyme, no reason, no organization, nothing. Disappeared into black hole. You'd be hauled off to some police station and they would put you in a cell. A cell could, was meant to hold four or five people, could hold 40, 50 people with either a, 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 a pat for tzrochim, so everybody had the tzrochim in one pat, a hole in the ground maybe, and you could be sitting with criminals who would be happy to kill you at night and take your boots because it's worth something. 
nothing. And then they would start interrogating you. They would wait a while, and then they would call you. At 11 o'clock at night, sit down, and they would start raining questions on you. Night after night after night, till the morning, and then in the morning you're not allowed to sleep. You're not allowed to sleep in the cell during morning hours, and so on. Sometimes they would hit, sometimes they would beat, sometimes they would be cruel beyond words, and no idea when it would end, just on and on and on. They wanted mostly, for some reason, in the twisted sick minds, they need you to confess, because the emiss of Sheker is that when you beat somebody to a pulp and confesses, you have the emiss. And mostly they wanted you to master on other people. They wanted to get to the root of it. Who is the one? And what is it like? And who's running it? On and on and on. Every, almost everybody that it did it was zeichet to this. Then at the end of a month, two months, three months, they would either call you for a quote-unquote trial, which is sitting in front of a judge. Occasionally there'd be some show, there'd be a, a quote-unquote lawyer who would say, Avadi, you're guilty, but, that, but uh, Russian, it's great, Rachmim, should be Rachim, and instead of 25 years, you're going on 20 years. And sometimes you wouldn't even have a trial, and you would be just told you were sentenced. You could say goodbye usually, usually, not always, say goodbye, and tell your wife and children that for the next 20 years, next 25 years, you're not available. If ever. And you were sent to Siberia. Siberia is a place that's five million square miles. And they had labor camps. They, they were different than Nazi concentration camps in the Seder The Nazis wanted to kill you, but till you die, get some work out of you. They wanted to get some work out of you until you die. That was the difference. So they were interested in keeping you alive because they needed people to dig at the chapel and so on. I want to read an account of what, it, what, what interrogation looked like. This is probably the worst. The person who wrote this was Rabbi Yaakov Davrishvili. He was the Rav in Georgia, Tbilisi, Georgia. He was the Chachams of the Rav. He was, he was um, learned in Chabad Yeshivas. And he was put into jail for counter-revolutionary activities, clericalism. That's Barach. It says, so first there was interrogation with secretaries sitting there, very kind of a a very, very uh, polite interrogation, questions again and again and again and again, and then secretaries left for the evening. That's when the real interrogation started. They re-asked the questions again. And when they didn't get the answer that they were waiting for, the three interrogators came to me. One of them started hitting me on my head with his pounding my head with his fists. The second one had a long, hot steel rod and started beating my feet. The worst was the third one. He put me on a special metal chair, attached to 
for electric current. And every so often, he would plug it in. What can I tell you? I've gone through Shiva Maduri Gehenim in Soviet Russia. But all the Asurim and all the torches are nothing compared to this horrendous Asurim that I felt when they attached me to electricity. I felt as if every single limb of my body is falling apart. I can't, I can't begin to describe it. And this is after having been hit with the hot rod, with the, with the, with the, with the slaps and punches in my face. Today, when I try to remember those days, I wonder, where did I get Kaychus to withstand it? It's not possible. There is no normal natural koach of a human being to withstand these tortures and remain alive, or at least to go crazy. And somehow, HaKadosh Baruch gave me these kochos. He's being interviewed by somebody, and then he pulls up his, his uh, pants, and he shows him his feet. 30 years later, they're still black, bloated, with open wounds. He said, look what they did to me. It's been 30 years. My legs still haven't healed. Haven't healed. It's the way it stays. I can't sleep at night because of the terrible pain. There was, it wasn't enough. And then they kept asking again and again and again. And when I wouldn't tell them the name of any Talmud or teacher or anything, they got angrier and angrier. They undressed me and did terrible things to me. He said, and then, after the night finished, they would dump in my room, which was filled with sewage. And I couldn't do anything. I was, had to sit half immersed in the sewage. And finally, at 10 o'clock at night, they would bring in a metal board and I could sleep on the board. I felt I can't anymore. And there's no point in living, there's no point in going on. And I began thinking about taking my life. As I was being taken out of my cell, I found a small piece of paper. I grabbed it and I began scrolling on it. A vidui. I had a burnt match and that became my pencil. And I wrote to Bainashalam, I feel I can no longer take this. I'm afraid that I'm going to tell them things that I shouldn't, and I will tell on others. I'm ready to die in Kiddush Hashem, but I'm scared that I won't be able to withstand the Messianus. Please, Yubayi Shalom, don't judge me. Don't judge me if I take my life, and don't cause me to lose two worlds. He said, as when I wrote this, I felt better. And I felt much better. The world is past already, and I soon will be in a better place. But Kaddish Baruch Hu wanted differently. He ended up coming to Israel, became the Rav of the Gruzians in Yerushalayim, and Eretz Israel, and so on. This is what it looks like. It is probably the most extreme one that I've read. But this goes on, and again, it's a tahoyim, on and on and on. Every single person. Every single Malamid, every single Shaykhit, every single person that had been there went through this. 
And then they were sent off to Siberia. The life in camps there was excruciating. It was something that you couldn't... Um, it, 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 the, the temperatures outside were, were 20, 30, 40 <coughs> beneath zero. You had to work in human hours and you got 400 grams of bread and maybe a little, if you work, if you work less, they didn't fill your quota, you got less. It became a vicious cycle. Most people died sooner or later in these conditions. They were conditions beyond words. I want to, and then this could be three years, 10 years, 20 years, 25 years. That's what each and every one of these people faced. Most of them ended up nowhere. No one knows what happened. They could have been shot summarily. They could have died in the jail. They could have died in a labor camp. Nothing. No one knew. Nothing was told over. I want to share one of the Yidin, we'll speak about him later, Ramat Lifshitz, he was Sheikhet. Two stories that he shares about his time in the prison before he went to the Siberia. One was that they brought in a guy, so they had this jail, with this, this cell with 40, 50 people. They brought in a guy, and an older guy, who was very religious, devoutly religious, and he read a lot. He was an intelligent person. And he asked Ramad Lifshitz about, Ramad Lifshitz was a Chabatzka Sheikhet, he asked him about his life and so on, and what he's in for. Then he told him, you know, have you studied the Talmud? He said, yes. I mean, he asked Ramad Lifshitz if he had studied Talmud. He says, I once read a story from the Talmud that sounds so much like a story. It's about somebody named Rabbi Akiva and Pappas, that Rabbi Akiva would teach Torah despite the dangers. Motel said he felt the chizik men hashemayim that they're telling him a message. That was one interesting story. It's another story. They brought in somebody who had been a high-ranking KGB officer. And those were usually got the worst treatment. The, um, every so often there'd be uh, falling out and they would ship higher-ups. Obviously, when you're in a cell with 40, 50 people, in a, in a room, stuff with 40, 50 people, you, you, people talk about each other. And this person was Jewish. He had learned in a cheder. He had had a traditional upbringing. And he became a very devout communist. And very, you know, reached high rank. And then tables turned. They were allowed out of the cell 10 minutes a day to, 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 for exercise. So they would be marched out. They had strict instructions how to walk around. And it was the only 10 minutes to breathe air. They were in a cell without a real window. Stuck so many people together with the pots of in the room. And the only time to breathe was these 10 minutes. And this person asked Ramatul Lifshitz for a favor. 
do you mind skipping the next 10 minute exercise, tomorrow's exercise? So he looked at him, said, why? He said, I want you to sing for me a nigan, either kol nidre or an asanatayikif. He didn't start and he said, I mean, it's, it's my lifeline, but a yid like that, yes, they agreed. Everyone left, they stayed, and he began singing Adam offer, Sarim offer, and a floodgate of tears opened up in this communist's eyes, and he sobbed uncontrollably. And what Lipschitz said, the Rebbe Rashab used to say, you have to be a maven to understand what Yiddish Hashem is. Here you have a diehard communist sworn to loyalty, the party, the this, the that, high-ranking officer, smack him twice, and then Hashem comes back again and pours out in the sanitarium. Didn't stay much longer, and they took him away, and that was the end of that. But there's another half to it. That's the people who suffered. I want to read what it looks like from the other side. So they've taken away this person from his home. And somebody writes, the living orphan. Reminiscing about the years of my youth in Soviet Union brings back fractured memories and so on. I remember that long, cold, dark night when I awoke to the sound of sobbing, mother was standing, crying hysterically as she waved her hands in the air. Father was standing half-dressed, scared to death. The young people dressed in uniforms were milling around the room, searching the closets and the beds, looking at the walls. I watched as they approached the bookcase and examined each book page by page. They found what they were looking for, they found a few handwritten pieces of paper and a picture of the Rebbe. One pointed the other, do you see? This is a Schneerson. They commanded father to dress and come with them. Three young people dressed in uniforms and milling around the room, searching the closets and so on. Father came to my small bed, bent down, and gave me a kiss, long and painful. Tears, big ones, hot ones, blazing ones, rolled off his cheek and onto my forehead. He then looked at mother with fire and love in his eyes. He kissed the mezuzah on the doorway and disappeared into the dark of night. Only when the door closed did my child's mind grasp how great our tragedy was. Mother began to sob, Oyve. She fainted. The neighbors came and revived her. They tried to console her. When the morning came, she threw on a scarf and ran out. She returned later, tired, despondent, and broken. She fed me and fell into an exhausted sleep. I once heard mother tell the neighbors that on that night, they also took another 50 married men and several students, all of them chassidim, friends and students of fathers. This was a communal tragedy, but it not lessened mother's pain. Now, day after day, she would run around the streets. She would go wherever possible to beg, to protest, to cry, while I was left at home alone like an orphan. Out of pity, the neighbors would come and turn on the oven to eat our home and bring me something to eat. I would sit at the window waiting for hours. Maybe mother's coming, maybe father's coming. My young soul was anxious. I held back my tears.
I felt as if a thief stole without mercy the beauty of life. He stole my smile, my happiness, my childhood. It was only a short while ago that father would spend days with me playing and singing. He would run to me, give me a hug, and kiss me without end. He would tell me stories, extraordinary stories from Torah and Talmud. I was already studying Torah with Rashi, but father would insist on teaching me lofty concepts I did not completely understand. Mother would say, Gewalt, what are you doing? To a child as young as Ashleimke may be well. You speak of such subject? If I was able to, Father would say, I would inject the entire turn into his brain. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? He, um, someone, an uncle of his came, took him away. His mother couldn't raise him. I'm just going to give cats over here. Um, he's, uh, he, he once saw the yeshiva that his father was teaching him. He took him there to visit. And then he's, a few months after father's taken away, his sister's her sister's husband, Uncle Moshe, came to town. After talking with mother for a while, they decided that I was to go live with Uncle Moshe. He was a tall and thin man, and although elderly, very strong, didn't have children, and the parting was heart-wrenching. And he went on to, uh, to live with him, to learn an underground cheder. How I want to see my father one more time, to have one more talk with him. Since my father was taken, they call me the living orphan. As a child, I never understood our other orphans not living. Today I understand I'm indeed a unique orphan. Even to say the Kaddish prayer once, to pour out my soul, I cannot. That's what it looked like on the other side. So one after another, after another, after another, people had stayed. People gave up everything. They ended up in the Gehenna of the penal system. And this is what it looked like for the wives, for the children, one after the other. Almost nobody was left that hadn't been affected. This went on one terror, another terror, it's hard to describe what left. Shirayim to Shirayim. Um, until finally, 50 years went by. 50 years is a lomesh al It's an entire world. 50 years wipes the map clean. Everything is gone. Nobody was around, or almost nobody was around, that could remember Yiddishkeit in any sense. They had, there was a group learning in the, in the shul small group later on, but I just want to read. Um, KGB in Moscow received this disquieting news. Um, a refusenik had, um, had been class teaching, had begun a class in Jewish Bible and Jewish laws, but does it pose a threat to the Soviet state? They, they sent a letter to the shul. Uh, the president of Moscow synagogue received a letter is ostensibly from the State Committee on Religious Affairs. The president knew better than that. The KGB was making inquiries. We have been informed that a group of young people are coming together to study Jewish law. What is the synagogue's evaluation of the future of such an endeavor? And just to make it clear, the uh, synagogue and the Tanhala was on the KGB side. They were employees of the KGB. They were not the Tashmichi Kedusha exactly. 
The answer was simple and quickly penned. There is no danger in these activities, the president assured the state committee. Judaism is a religion of strict observance, and the laws are almost impossible to keep for young people in the Soviet Union. Students, for instance, must attend the university on Shabbos. The Soviet diet, too, is already quite restricted. No one voluntarily stick further by keeping laws of kashras. This will end with three or four madmen, um, but this could not possibly endanger the state. This is a very, very logical letter. It makes a lot of sense. 50 years, nothing was there. They didn't know what an olive base was like. They had no idea. The slate was wiped clean, and this is the most logical conclusion that an, uh, a, an analytical mind could make. This is as, as analytical as a human mind can make. But there are other things besides the human mind. 50 years later, Balayla Hunadash Nasamalach, 1967, the earth shook. Things happened. Neretz Yisrael, incredible Nisim, and it filtered back to the Soviet Union. They helped because they announced and spoke about how terrible Israel was. Anti-Semitism, Yidnu didn't know Yidnu, when they were told, you're Jewish and you're terrible. And something began moving and changing. And people became interested. It started with Israel, with Zionism, with Hebrew, with Yiddishkeit. And something started brewing. They still didn't know anything. And through Pleas of Ashkacha, there was a person, Abnei Besson is alive, same Rebellio SS, a mathematician, he was a brilliant mathematician. He found himself in Moscow, got into it. At that time, they needed to, quote unquote, open a yeshiva, which hadn't existed. They needed it because, one, I think, one of the presidents was visiting, maybe Nixon or somebody was visiting, and they needed to show a yeshiva. So they were desperately looking for people who could fit in. So they hauled in two or three old people. They hauled in somebody who was clearly unhinged. And he applied. They took him. They, needed, they just needed a dozen bodies to fill this. The, the Maila, the yeshiva had nothing to offer except access to the library. And they could, because he was an academic researcher with clearance to look at all sorts of texts, was able to look at Sfarim, at books, and begin to learn. But you can't, you can't learn from no place. You, you, you can't start with books. So there were three, four sparks left. There was a Yid. He happened to meet our tights. He sent him to a yid in Riga. Um, I think his name was Jakobsen, if I'm not mistaken, who was still left over from the old times where you're there safer. And he spent time with him learning. And in the Moscow shul, because it was a showcase, they needed to have something to show. And there were three of the people Again, I, if 
if I met someone, I'll maybe some other times come back. But the names that I, the name that I heard over the years, three people were were instrumental in being the spark that lit. One was named Reb Getcher, Reb Getcher Velensky. He was a Chabad Chassid. He was a Yid who was Kol Kulay. Dveikus, Reimus, Yira, an old time Oiskabit Yid. He'd worked in some sort of as Balmalacha so that he wouldn't be Machal Shabbos. He, he had a system arranged. And he, um, and he was a person who gave over a tam. There's, a, there's a, uh, a small video clip of him singing uh, a niggin about a traker being led through snows and hardships and triumph in the end. So obviously, Remus Kleisrow, he was a warm, aspiring person. And he was in charge of Brisson on adults. We'll come back to it later. I was there in 1987. Um, 87 was much easier, much freer. That's why we could go and teach. We didn't go to the main shul because the main shul was basically just a KGB. I mean, we didn't do anything, but you, you basically burnt whatever you could do. So the last day, we instructed the Damashachis there, leave out tefillin, to get out tefillin there, and somebody would pick them up. That was the... So I walked into the shul. It's a side room to the main room. And it's harder to describe a more motley group of people there. Just anybody who was really about tshuva and a real... They say for something, stayed away from there, because you, you, you could be on somebody's radar screen, so you stayed away from the shul. The, the, oh, a few old, decrepit... Uh, the word motley... It strikes just just strange group of, of all sorts of weird people, but there was about filler with such geschmack. The the, the Litvish, Russian, pneumistic regish and fire in every word. I remember the Halalukas as the sun was rising up. I didn't know who the person was. I wasn't allowed to go. Wasn't supposed to go to him, but, but it had the time. Of, of, of the real time of, of a Litvish at Vekus. And, and I was just thinking, in, in a country, I don't know how many tens of millions square mile, Choyshech, everything was dreary, dead, lifeless. And one voice, one voice was saying hallelujah. The, 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 the baltfil of, 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 of the entire chalik. I later, I asked around, it was hard for people to identify. I had a vague picture of, I didn't have a. The, the consensus was it was Kanir Abgetcha. There, there weren't many people, could have been an Abgetcha, it was the most likely candidate. There was Abgetcha Vlensky. He, he had the warmth, the fire. He was Isaac and Hasodim. In, in being able, you know, people needed money and there was no way to get it and it was very difficult and he was available, that was him. There was a second Yid, Reb Mata Lifshitz, also Chababik. Reb Mata was, had been in the worst camp. He was in Kalimia, that was north of Siberia. It was a place that was mostly yet totally inaccessible and the years when it says we had to go over the boat. 
as the, when they were taking him, he, he was in a regular camp. He refused to work on Shabbos. So he said, okay, we'll send you to someplace else. And, and he was put on the train. And when the, there, there, there were a lot of criminals on the train. When they heard they're going to Klimia, they, um, one of them committed suicide. It was so terrifying. The, the, the ground was so cold that when somebody died during the 10 winter months or so, they would either toss him to the sea or leave him for the bears to eat. There was no, there was no digging. They had to stand all day, every day, pounding away at the earth because there's gold over there. And, and day in, day out, with 300, 400 grams of bread, he refused to eat anything else except for bread and water because it wasn't kosher. And he spent three years over there in, in the harrowing Gehenim that murderers were afraid to go to. That's how bad it was. He was, he was a sheikhet, a mother a sheikhet, and he did brisson on young children, on small children. And finally, there was a yidra of Avram Miller. Avram Miller was a Talmud of Chavetz Chaim yet. He was 13, 14 years old, 14 years old when he learned about Chavetz Chaim. He had been sentenced twice in other camps. And he would sit in the shul and say a shir in Gemara. He was the only Talmud Chacham, the only Adair Sefer. So there were a few old people, and that was okay with the government. When the young people started coming, they didn't understand Yiddish. So he would forget himself and slip into Russian. Forget himself in quotation marks. And they warned him again and again. You know, accidents happen in the city. It's a busy city, a lot of traffic. Accidents happen. Got called in KGB. So they have to be twice. And the guy told him, you don't know how far, you, you, you know, there are far places you can go to. And he looked at me and said, there are only two places I can go to. And he named them the two Besakvaris in Moscow. He said, I'm going there anyway. The question is just how soon. So you're not sending me any other place. And they let him. Maybe this was the person whose group they were talking about, probably. And he began teaching them, teaching Torah. One of the people at Sri Papas wrote about him, he had been teaching. He would say two shurim a day. He would say one shur a day. Then when he was sentenced the second time, after he came back, he was walking back from shul, and he said, I wonder, all of a sudden he says, I got it. And, and I think of Sri Papas was walking, Sri Papas was one of the students, said, what, what? I was trying to figure out why I was sentenced to a second kufa. And now I realize it's Bittal Torah. I resolved to say two shurim a day, morning and night. And it wasn't just the Sakhan saying shurim. He, he lived in Ekvel. Moscow wasn't a, a, I mean, you had to take a train from one to the other end. That was him. There had been a yid before him that was saying a shir. His name was Tovbin, I think. And he was an older Yid. He himself had been a Yelid Brisk. When Rishabel Salvechik needed a Malamed at the age of nine, he was the Malamed. He said a shir, 
And then on the list, on Rishchidosh, one Rishchidosh, he, he davened with tremendous Cyrus, La Mesim Yaluka. He walked by, he took her to Avram Miller and they walked home. And he told her about Avram, Nit dem tish, keep the table going. And he collapsed and died. That was Avram Tovbin. And he took it over. And Avram Miller sat and taught. And almost every person that had learned was his Talmud or a Talmud of one of his Talmudim, or a Talmud of a Talmud of one of his, of one of his Talmudim's Talmudim. That's, that was it. That's where Terry came from. One spark, and it lit up. The, um, it's hard to, to, to picture the difficulties. Slowly, a Chabur began to grow. And one of them told me, the, um, I was speaking to him, it's Nassim, um, in America, known him before, he lives in America. And he described to me his bris mila. He first told me, I, was, I asked him about these three people, he said, this was our Zaydis. We did not have parents, not not parents that, that could give anything. We didn't have Zaydis. This was our Zaydis. These three people were the grandfathers. And everything came from them. All of Torah. He told me, yes, nothing about his bris. He's a man must be in the 60s now. He said, he said the first time he looked in, he saw Rabbi Avram. He said, I didn't know what it was, but there was such a tahar on the person. We spoke about Tam, we spoke about Reach. All these people, they had no idea. They didn't know anything. This was old-fashioned, decadent. Nobody normal would think anything of it. But some, but they had Reach, Tyrusberg. There was something there that radiated. The person said, wow, yes, there is a God in the world. And I see it on the carny hoid, this person. That's what drew them. So he slowly began keeping mitzvahs. And then he decided he needs a bris. Not easy, 20-year-old have a bris. It's very painful. Conditions, let's say, were not hospital-like. And getting caught with it. And v'chulhu. Kitsa, he went over to... Um, Reb Motl or Reb Getzel, and he said he wants he's going to do a bris. He said, fine. He said, Sunday, go to this and this place. He told him to take a subway to the end of town. Um, so Reb Motl was in charge of bris for little kids and Reb Getzel for the adults. He took a train to the, to the end of the station. Somebody meets him there and says, now take the other train to the other end, to a different direction. He did that met another person and told him, take this train to the other end. Finally, a third or fourth time, he went out and he was told where to go. He went to an apartment. There was, um, uh, it, 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 the, the apartment belonged to Bobet Charne. 
He said she was a tiny old woman and she radiated so much strength. She was a leftover of, of, the, of two days ago and the brisson were in her house, her house, her apartment. So whoever needed bris that day would be there. There was a bedroom where you waited and in the living room on the table they made the bris. Reb Getzel would do the chituch and the bandaging, they had a, a, a surgeon, a chashva surgeon was there. And while you were there, Babachana would be preparing a lekach and stewed apples for the bris, for the Sudas bris. And every single person in that room would, could have been sent away for decades. Teaching Torah, so it doesn't look so good for the world. But surgical procedures, um, you know, in, in unsanitary conditions, to, or they could be moments you stole the baby, uh, this and that. Every single person there was there with Mr. Snatch beyond words, and including the person having the bris. This, the surgeon was a surgeon in a very hush of a, I think it was a cardiac surgeon in a very hush of a hospital, and him doing it, he, his career would have been over. At best, if they came back from, 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 from jail, he could, they would give him to sweep the streets, and he did it. And Nelson told me, there are two holy tables in Moscow. Rabbi Rome's table with the Lantera and Boba China's table with the Machnas de Bris. I was thinking, it was, it was there are two Mizbechas in the Beis HaMikdash. Mizbech of Karbanis, Mizbech of Ketiris. It says if a person learns Torah, Skilu is Mark of Karbanis. And they give us Arlis, a given, was, it says, the Reach was a Reach of Ketiris. Yeah. We don't have the Mizbeach and Mizamigdash. But there was a time and a place when, when, when we had a Mizbeach Oila and a Mizbeach Ketiris. It was Bedomim, Tartim. The people sitting around this table in Ravram could have been killed, and the people by the bris, every single step of the way was mysterious nefesh, beyond words. Two mispechas. We were zeicher, we'd have them. If not, it requires the incredible mysterious nefesh. I was speaking to Rabbi Asas, who was the one who was the catalyst for that whole movement, the Balichuva. And I told him, with Smooth, I know him, I know him from Tesoliat, we've been, he was a shop in mine, we're good friends. And I told him, you know, I have our gasha that all, the, all of those people that disappeared, all of those people we, that, that we described, one by one by one, disappeared. That was what flowered again. And he said, for you, it's a hargasha.
I know that this is it. It didn't mean he knows it. No address is looked up. He lived it. It was something that was not Shaykh. No Han Tivis could have brought it back. It was only something that the, the, all the spilled blood, the frozen bodies, the disappeared people, the living Agunis, the living Yisayman, that whole Yam created a Nes Nigla, a Bedamaya Chayi. One more point. These Eden, Reb Matel, Reb Getzel, lived with phenomenal serious nefesh. They were Hasidim, Chabad Hasidim. And as the 80s were beginning to wind down and things were becoming free, the possibility to come and visit was there, was real. And the Rebbe, the, and the Rebbe did not let Rebbe Getzel come. He said, what's going to be with everybody? Rebbe Muttel had a daughter who was in America. I got married without him, obviously. And now he wanted to visit her. He never met his son-in-law. He didn't know who he was and what he was. And he asked permission to come visit. I'm sorry, I'm gonna, I want to read inside. Sent back to him. That's maybe here. Yeah. Bechol ha ir v'smaseha nisharu rak mesei mispa b'yaisa k'sheichet ukiyaitze bay. In the entire massacre and surroundings, there's almost no sheichet ukiyaitze bay. The rem is on a moil. He didn't want to write moil. Ve'echse yazvim. I feel this man cut to b'yaisa. How, how, could, how do you think of even leaving them for a short time? How can you jump over, even for a short time? And you don't want the schus is seeing me, or the schus is being a sheikh in the mail, in Moscow. I, I don't know where you're coming from. The Rebbe lived... The Rebbe lived every single step of this. This was his chesidim, this was his tsaris, this was his tsar. He knew everything. Here was a yid that had gone through Shiva Madura Gehenim, and then some. And now he had a bakasha to come. And the Rebbe said, you're a soldier on duty. There's no one else. How can you? The only time he gave permission was two or three years later when he had trained in other sheikh, the Mailam, and so on. And they were, and, and then he gave him permission, and then he came, and he eventually settled there. But that was, there's a story here about your model. This Yuli Edelstein, he was a Russian, he was the speaker of the Knesset, said over after he was Nifter Rebmatl. He said that he once came for a bris, the place, and everybody was there ready, except Rebmatl hadn't come yet. And all of a sudden, there was a bang on the door, and the police arrived. 
Kitzah, they took everybody's name, what are you doing here, Bechulu, Bechulu, and people left. And, yeah, that's it. The police left, they drove away. Five minutes later, Reb Mottl walks in, paler than a ghost. He was there, he says it over. He had seen the police come, and he had jumped behind a tree. Police didn't see him. And when they left, he came. And he said, if I wouldn't make the bris now, I'll never have a bris. You know, the mice was too traumatic. So this is, this is what a person lived through. And the Rebbe told him, I don't understand how you even have a Havamina. Who are you leaving the city to? And what bigger schools can there be than to attend bris and shrit and so on? One more thing I found that's very, very extraordinary. He got out. And he came and lived his last decades of his life in Crown Heights. He was Nifta Zaka Muflug. And he reflects, he wrote the, the stories, he wrote a book in Yiddish called Zechoinus from Gulag. He, this Reb Nossin told me he met him, you know, he know each other. He'd done the bris on him. And he met him in Crown Heights. He was already an old man, bent over. And he told him his name. He picked up his head, down. Then he said to him, Reb Mottl, why don't you tell your story? Reb Mottl picked up his head and said, at f- minus 40 degrees, the human hand cannot bend. We had to work with sticks pounding the ground until it was minus 50. I don't have who I can even tell the story to. I, I, does anyone understand what minus 40 is? What am I going to tell people? They, they won't even understand the story. He did write up Zechreinus. And it's a Yiddish Zechreinus from Gulag, and that's where I got it from. A final reflection one would ex- expect to be Ah, Baruch Hashem, Shpochu Padani, Bitzilani, Osani, Cholo, Cholo, Cholo. That's sort of the epilogue of a book like that. There's a little bit of a different epilogue. He has a quote from a Sikha from the Mariats in 1927, before the Rebbe was arrested. Hazman Shomasil's Nefesh, Oive Vachilov. The Tkufa Mrs. Nefesh is passing by. Kibikore Vilandu Nari Sobeshkeli, Rishkalei. Soon, Jewish children will learn openly. Eden, chapt arayn miseras nefesh. Chapt. Eden, grab miseras nefesh. Grab. Ki oive v'hoylech hazmash miseras nefesh. The time for miseras nefesh is passing by. Oid me'at v'yovay z'man sh'chayv 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 There'll come a time when it'll be completely open to practice. V'oz t'chapsu and then you're going to look for this nefesh and you won't find it. There'll come a time very soon you're going to speak with tremendous awe on the people who were to sit in jail because they malamed him. Because you kept the cheder, yeshiva mikvetayra. Tiskanu behem you're going to be jealous of them. And 
and you're going to have Agnes Nefesh that you weren't Seicher. Eden, Chaptarein Misseras Nefesh. Eden, Kreb Misseras Nefesh. That's his epilogue. The difference in the Psukim speak about Eres, Eres grows tall. Ezevakira, like ivy, things, they also grow. They can grow very long. And they can grow maybe even if it was stretched out longer than the higher than the Eris. But they're always stuck on the ground. They're always grabbing, creeping. They can't leave the ground. The Arzal Vanan of Rabbi Kiva is not only the Moisenefish, but Tanya says I feel the culture the culture of Israel is Moisenefish when it comes to Yarg Vayavr. But Rabbi Kiva lived all his life. He lived the Pasik. He didn't die the Pasik. Bechol Nafshechol was what he lived. So he rose above the ground. That's an heiress. We creep and creep and creep. So no matter how much we grow, somewhere along the line we're still stuck to something on the ground. It's an incredible tkufa. That's in our backyard. A credible tkufa of shmad, avor das. So many arosim fell. So many arosim we don't know. Town after town, malamed after malamed, sheichet after sheichet, moil after moil. Stories untold. No one knew they were there. Chazal say. An eras goes tall, but he leaves no Paris. A tomer has Paris, but doesn't doesn't uh, grow tall, as tall as an eras. The tzaddik has both. These are rosin that fell. They left Paris. We don't understand exactly how. But the two, three embers carried over Messiris to become a fire again. The, and I would add something. The payers that an Eris gives is not benoisif to its gavus. It's tall and also a Kodesh Baruch made a hybrid. The gavus and the roimimus of the Eris is what inspires people. The people who came from nowhere, they'd never seen anything Jewish, didn't know anything. Three old people with, 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 with practices, they had no idea what they were, and Torah and, and, and death. But they saw the Gavos, they saw something there. That Gavos was Moilit. People whose who were told, as long as you're needed, how can you leave and think of yourself? People who are misgagea, whose final sum total of such a horrendously difficult life is chaps misers nefeshiden, while the tzayt get by. That's part of the arazim of Kaiso. That's arazim of Kaiso.